0: Blog TALK RADIO You're listening to GAY NEWS AMERICA. My name is Brandon Carmody. We want to welcome our listeners to the United States and around the world. The Pride Clinic at the Thomas F. McCafferty Health Center in Ohio is the only facility from New York to Chicago that specifically specializes in the health needs of the LGBTQ community. Um, We have as our special guest today, Dr. Henry Ng, Clinic Director. Um, Sir, welcome to Gay is America.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. You're very welcome. Thank you for being here. Um, Dr, can you tell us about your background a little bit and what led to the birth of the Pride Clinic and these services?
1: Uh, I'd be happy to do so. Um I'm trained in uh, two disciplines in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Uh, so we combine the the names of those two, and we just simply say medpeds. So unfortunately, we're we've been around as a group of physicians doing this work in this field for as long as family medicine has, but we're still kind of America's best-kept secret. We're working really hard on making sure America knows what MedPeds doctors do. So we're certified to take care of healthcare problems of both adults and children. But even in my own training, we didn't have, I didn't have experience working with lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender patients uh, very much. Um, But because I don't identify as a heterosexual cisgender person, I uh, identify as a queer person, um, I would attract some patients from the LGBT community um, who were seeking care. They started to see me when I was a resident physician still under um, supervision, and I would start hearing stories and um, tales of their challenges of getting, affirming care in medicine and also uh, care from health professionals who really knew what they were doing. So, you know, with that uh, feedback from the community in 2005 to 2006, our hospital at Metro Health Medical Center embarked on a uh, public health survey of our community to better understand the LGBT community's needs and uh, ultimately, what we uh, were able to develop was a clinical service for sexual gender minority people, and we tried to reflect as many of their needs into the planning of the program as possible so Ultimately, our community came up with the name of the program. They helped decide what half a town it was in and even the hours of the clinic.
0: That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. So this was an internal decision made within the hospital. Uh, were there any lobbying groups within the LGBTQ community that were reaching out or did the hospital itself just sort of recognize the need?
1: It was a combination of both. Uh, immediately, Uh, Prior to this, and somewhat concurrent, I had actually been working with about 40 other community organizations, health organizations, because we were trying to address issues of homelessness in our youth community here in Northeast Ohio, and I I developed relationships with um, leaders um, and uh, folks from many different organizations who were very broadly intersecting health. And when we finished that particular project looking at youth homelessness, it was around the time that this idea of starting an LGBT clinic came up. So we had the opportunity to go back to a similar group of leaders and community stakeholders and ask them, well, if we put something together, does this make sense? Does this sound good? Would you have buy-in? Would you refer your clients or patients to come to this type of service? What types of things do you uh, feel would be necessary So we had um, uh, information from outside stakeholders in addition to our survey, and then we were able to present all this information to the hospital leadership and administration. I I learned very quickly that uh, to be successful, you have to have a business plan. And even though I didn't take business classes in medical school um, or during my residency training, I learned very quickly on the job how important that was. So everything from creating a budget to an expense and income sheet, that was all part of um, this plan. And um, thank goodness the hospital was very affirming and said, gosh, this is completely within our, you know, mission and this is something we definitely should do. This is a no brainer. I'm so glad that you brought this up, Dr. Ring. Uh, Well, I'm not quite embellishing it that much, Um, but it it was a very positive experience overall. And now we're looking at celebrating our 10 year anniversary come April.
0: That's fantastic. 10 years. So um, I have, Lots of medical questions, but I want to uh, get into the history of the clinic before I dive into everything medical. So, folks, if you're listening um, with us online, please check out the website I'm reading from, which is MetroHealth.org slash Pride-Clinic. So it says the Pride Clinic offers gay-friendly primary care. In a perfect world, gay and lesbian health concerns could be addressed in any primary care office, but sometimes people in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community don't feel safe and supported in a standard medical office. And that leads me into my next question, doctor. There is a lot of fear in the LGBT community for a variety of reasons, of course, with a lot of added fear in our current political climate, everything from stigma, discrimination, rejection by families, communities, homelessness. Um, So without disclosing any patient-specific information, could you tell us some of the types of fears or concerns that patients express to you directly? Like what might keep them from seeking health care, seeking a primary care doctor, or what might keep them from walking into an emergency room?
1: Uh, I think that certainly just stigma and fear and um, a fear of, of discrimination, fear of being mistreated and, and frankly, even harmed is among the, the, the top, uh, that patients have told us that they're concerned about um, in terms of trying to access care. Um, Patients have had negative experiences in a number of different settings already. They've gone to their local community hospitals or emergency departments or uh, primary care doctor offices, uh, obstetricians, gynecologists, and oftentimes have found themselves in situations um, where those health professionals Um, allowed implicit bias to color the way that they were um, being treated. And implicit bias meaning that everyone has a a set of beliefs, uh, a set of uh, uh, influences from your starting point that kind of influence the way that you might think and interact with people. These are biases that are part of all of us, and in order to overcome them and overcome stigma, we really need to, you know, be aware that they exist and have systematic methods in place so that we challenge those and prevent them from taking over a clinical experience. So um, patients definitely have been afraid. A lot of um, health professionals historically have been uncomfortable talking about sexuality and sexual health. So a number of our patients who want to come talk to us about um, safer sex and remaining HIV negative or preventing HIV being transmitted if they're HIV positive, um, amongst other sexual health conditions, um, sexual transmitted infections and whatnot, um, as they try to have these conversations with some health professionals, they find themselves um, in very uncomfortable situations where the doctor or nurse practitioner or PA either doesn't have the skills to talk about it um, in a knowledgeable way or even an affirming way or is even willing to bring up the conversation. So health professionals inadvertently can shut patients down and prevent, you know, very important and meaningful conversations to promote one's health. So part of our work in care is to make sure that when we have patients come to the clinic, you know, certainly we greet them with their affirmed name. We greet them and we try to use our patients' preferred gender pronouns. We try to um, always acknowledge our patients and the important people who are with them that day, if they're um, members of their uh, family of choice or their family of origin. And then we have frank discussions about whatever it is that brought them to clinic. Sometimes it's sexual health issues. Sometimes it's gender issues. Sometimes it's coming out. Sometimes it's HIV prevention. Sometimes it's good old-fashioned primary care, meaning I need my vaccinations. I need to stay healthy. I just need my checkup. Doc, are you, are you making sure that I'm okay? So it's a, a kind of a laundry list of many different things that patients do come for um, that we try to be prepared for, and we are a teaching site for um, an elective on LGBT health for Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, where I'm very happy to say we've had over 30 students from this last uh, class of over 172 um, participate and learn in LGBT health and These students are the future for us in healthcare. They're the ones who will become the next generation of physicians with the skills and the knowledge and the attitudes, really, to provide affirming care for all people.
0: Excellent, excellent. And uh, I did have a medical student question. This is going to be a two-parter. So it does seem as if there are more and more medical students wanting to be involved within the LGBTQ community. So question one, why do you think that is? And the really tricky part, part B of this question is, is the culture changing? Is medicine starting to teach more about LGBT issues in general?
1: I, I think that the culture is changing and um, the the number of students who are self-identifying as LGBTQ or allies who are out and loud about their status of you know who they are or what they believe in in terms of healthcare equality and healthcare equity. Um, I think the voices of these students are increasing over time, which is really, you know, something that's, uh, I think, very necessary in improving health care in the United States and, and, and um, improving the health disparities that we've been seeing in LGBT populations. Um, I think that more and more students who have a social mindedness uh, about social justice are going into medicine. Um, both as uh, career changers as as well as early career, so folks, young folks who decided early on, I want to become a doctor, as well as individuals who might have, you know, been uh, in another career for a few years before changing their mind or changing careers. And I, I think that's a great thing. I am also an assistant dean for admissions at the School of Medicine at Case Western, and um, we we do see um, a strong number of. Uh, Student applicants to our School of Medicine who self-identify or align themselves with issues in the LGBT community uh, actually as part of their application process. They will write about how important serving this community is or how important part of this is to their own personal identity and their essay. So I think that there's a growing number of individuals who, you know, are really coming out in medicine, so to speak, um, and coming out in healthcare Um, for students to learn more about this Um, I I think that's also an area where we've seen a big shift in education about studies had been done in the the Mm -hmm. early 1990s showing maybe about two to three hours of education on LGBT topics and healthcare and you know a more recent study in 2011 showed that this had gone up to maybe about five hours altogether at most schools in the United States, um, at least in the preclinical years, the first two years before you take um, any of your rotations. So we, we still have a ways to go in terms of providing um, education um, at most schools, let alone all schools. Um, but I, I think that there is definitely effort afloat. And many hospital systems and schools of medicine across the country um, have made efforts and inroads to include LGBT uh, and um, and other uh, important health content related to sexuality uh, into the curriculum more. That's perfect. Um, So I want
0: to, you know, we do have a lot of LGBTQ listeners. So uh, for those folks that may uh, be, you know, thinking about seeking health care that have not, I think it's really important to talk about some of these different services. So on the preventative side, you go down a list of adult, adolescent, and pediatric care OBGYN care, family planning, smoking cessation, controlling your cholesterol numbers, lowering your high blood pressure, immunizations, physical exams, HIV prevention, prep, and pre-exposure prophylaxis. If I'm saying that right, doctor. Um, but you got a pre-exposure about,
1: prophylaxis?
0: Um, yeah. And um, so, tell me about these specialty care because it talks about HIV care. Um, tell us a little bit about that.
1: So in our practice, um, patients who um, are HIV positive certainly can receive their care from any of us in the clinic um, uh, in terms of making sure that they have the appropriate antiretroviral medications and that appropriate tests are, are done to maintain their health. Um, we're not uh, The majority of our patients are not HIV positive, although we have some patients mm-hmm. who um, are living with HIV. A um, the, the large uh, portion of our practice is really focused around uh, HIV prevention, so using proper pre-exposure prophylaxis with a medication, emtricitabine and uh, tenofovir, is a, a really key, important piece of uh, our prevention efforts. So we talk to many patients from all backgrounds with different kinds of anatomy Because if you have genitals and you're sexually active and you could be exposed to HIV, PrEP could be, you know, a good choice for you as long as you can take a pill a day and you have normal kidney function and you don't have um, hepatitis. So, you know, we try to make sure we talk to our patients about um, PrEP as an option to see if it's something they'd like to try and do. And then if it is, then we can um, start them on this medication once daily and follow them periodically as per CDC guidelines. Um, it's, it's, I think, something very, very important. And, and also being able to, to frankly, talk about sexuality and healthy sexuality in an affirming way, you know, that really allows us to, to discuss PrEP amongst other things.
0: Yeah. And, and, of course, just to clarify for our listeners, we're talking about the drug Truvada. Um, obviously, there's people in our community that feel that PrEP was a huge breakthrough in stemming new infections and, um, you know, helping people that do live kind of a little bit more alternative sexual lifestyle that, that don't want to go the direction of condoms as much. Do you feel that this was a game changer in terms of what you see as far as patient results on PrEP?
1: Um, I'm not sure if I picked the word game changer. I I, I, I see that, you know, PrEP is definitely a a dual-edged sword. Um, It's definitely a very potent tool um, to prevent HIV transmission. However, when Mm -hmm. uh, people are having sexual um, intimate contact and they don't use barrier methods, the likelihood of getting other infections certainly increases, and that's a lot mm-hmm. of what we've been seeing, is you know that there are infections uh, of various parts of the body, not just the genitals, but certainly the throat or the rectum or the bottom, um, when people are using those parts of their body with their partners, and you can have gonorrheal infections or chlamydial infections of, of these parts of the anatomy. So um, a part of PrEP is actually having uh, discussions with your provider and talking about your sexuality, with whom you've had sexual contact, what parts of your body and what anatomy you've been using, because those parts of the body that have been sexually active are really the parts of the body that should be swabbed and screened for sexual infections. Uh, That's actually one piece that oftentimes is is missing from uh, some of the practices of people who are prescribing PrEP.
0: Excellent, um, and I would love to go right down the rainbow with you real quick because you have uh, four different lists here. So under your top ten things lesbians should discuss with their health care provider, just giving our listeners that list real quick, breast cancer, depression, anxiety, heart health, gynecological cancer, fitness, tobacco, alcohol, substance use, intimate partner violence, and sexual health. Um, would you like to speak in any capacity to this first list about 10 things lesbians should discuss with healthcare care providers?
1: Um, n- not necessarily for any of the content. What I'll say is that the, these top 10 lists were developed by um, the organization um, now known as GLAMA, GLMA, Health Professionals Advancing LGBT Equality, and historically it was formerly known as the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association. They had a change in the name of the organization as they diversified their membership and allowed folks who were not just gay and lesbian identified and also not just medical doctors to be uh, members of the organization and participate in many different ways. And my understanding is that these top 10 lists for lesbian women, bisexual people, gay men, and transgender people um, were created um, in uh, expert Uh, consensus review to try to highlight what was known um, at the time some of these documents were created about some of the big health problems. Um, The ones that you listed for lesbian health are still very important ones to this day in terms of cancer prevention and tobacco use. Um, One of the things we've learned from some of the most recent population studies of LGB people um, is that tobacco use is still significantly higher among sexual and gender minority people than heterosexuals. So all the things that may be related to uh, tobacco use like heart disease and lung disease and cancer risk, those things are things that we need to keep an eye on and continue to explore through research. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, of course, with our
0: most marginalized community, the transgender community, I'm looking at that list right now. Um, Basically, it talks about the earnesty that the patient needs to give to their healthcare provider, to you folks there at the clinic, in order to begin that process. Um, Is that part of the beginning of that relationship? You know, it seems like the Pride Center that you're offering is a safe space.
1: Definitely. I mean, I think part of our, our goal is to create a place where people are comfortable being themselves and telling us about who they are. Um, And it's only through that process, I think, that we can effectively provide the care that they need. And I've had experiences with our patients where it's a a gradual process. So I've had patients, for example, who um, have identified as transgender and they come first to me for um, health concerns and they would like to start hormonal therapy, and we have a conversation about that, and I've asked them all types of questions about their health. And then um, on a subsequent visit, they come out and they say, well, Dr. Rang, you know, I actually wasn't fully um, honest with you at the first time of our visit. And they disclose that they're HIV positive or there's another health condition. Mm -hmm. I said, okay, well, that's fine. I'm I'm, I'm glad that you told me that's really important. And we also talk about why they may not have disclosed at the first visit. And um, what I've learned is oftentimes, you know, even when we create the most affirming environment that we can, um, everyone has you know, this, uh, their own perception of the environment that they're walking into. So sometimes we do the best we can, and folks still may feel some kind of way. They might still have a certain fear, and it's okay. For us, it's not personal. Our job is to, you know, maintain that environment of uh, affirmation and hopefully meet patients wherever they are. And I, I was really glad, for example, when that particular patient told me about her health issues so I could do a better job about providing her care.
0: It also seems like there's such a wide radius there, just going back to that introduction, being the only facility from New York to Chicago that specializes in this um, that's a wide latitude of zip codes is is that fair to say um so why is why is the clinic still such a secret? like how do people primarily find out about your clinic? Are they referred
1: well actually the the we we were the first, but I can't say the word the only anymore in the state of Ohio, and I actually'm mm-hmm. really happy about that. Um, we've had oh, an opportunity okay. to, uh, yes, it's, it's great news that we've had an opportunity to collaborate with other hospital systems and other providers across the state so that, you know, in 2007 we were the first and only, but now in 2017, for example, there's a transgender health program that's part of the Ohio State University College of Medicine, um, or School of Medicine rather. There's also... Um, transgender health services for um, uh, young people who are gender non-conforming or non-binary or transgender also at OSU Um, there are providers in Cincinnati both for adults and for adolescents Um, and there are some other uh, providers scattered throughout um, Ohio in Cleveland um, I I am I'm I'm really thrilled I think that we're at a point of almost LGBT Renaissance there are more and more providers um, and health professionals at each of the big hospital systems um, in uh, Northeast Ohio. For us, there are, there are four big ones, um, University Hospital and Rainbow Babies. There are affirming adolescent providers there as well as a urologist who joined the practice who's now performing um, vaginoplasty at the Cleveland Clinic. We have affirming primary care providers, um, support from psychiatry with Dr. Marat Altenay, um, who's a, a psychiatrist there as well as Dr. Cecile Unger, who is a advanced uh, pelvic uh, and reconstructive uh, surgeon um, who's trained through obstetrics and gynecology. She also performs vaginalplasties, so the creation of a vagina through surgical techniques. And yeah. uh, of course, at Metro Health, we have several clinicians who all do primary care and hormonal care and take care of patients and do prep. We also developed a pediatric team to take care of children and adolescents who are non-gender conforming or transgender. Um, and at the VA, we have Dr. Meg uh, McNamara, who started the Gift Program or the Give Program, which is a transgender program for uh, our American veterans. Uh, our veterans. So we we have like really cool things going on in the city, and um, we have uh, actually a density of providers that is. Um, as high as, if not higher than some, some that you would find in, say, New York or San Francisco. And who would ever have thought that we would find these types of services here in the Midwest, but here we are.
0: Definitely. Definitely. A um, uh, uh, question for you about the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Um, current efforts to repeal Obamacare. And then I swear the question for you, doctor, is not political because this is a, a serious medical issue. Um, one article I have in front of me right now from the Huffington Post is literally entitled How Repealing Obamacare Will Hit the LGBTQ Community Extra Hard. Um, the Congressional Budget Office came out yesterday their financial numbers as far as the current you know, health care plan that's on the table um, both in the House and the Senate right now to replace it. And they're saying that approximately 32 million people would lose health care. That does hit the LGBTQ community extra hard. Do you and your community have any concerns about how our community will be affected if um, Obamacare is effectively repealed and replaced?
1: If I remember correctly, the, the, um, the effort from um, groups like Out to Enroll um, that were in place during uh, the various enrollment periods for the Affordable Care Act, I think they had estimated that, you know, we had up to 8 million individuals who were LGBT who may have um, uh, were who were enrolled at that time. So we're talking about millions of people in the United States who have depended on the Affordable Care Act as their lifeline to uh, health insurance and we know that health insurance is um, necessary um, for um, for healthcare. Certainly, it's not uh, the only thing we need, but we definitely need uh, health insurance oftentimes to access healthcare services. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm very concerned that along with the shift uh, of of who will become uninsured, especially if we have you know a downsizing of uh, Medicaid. Um those, have, those services really have benefited LGBT Americans, both in Ohio and I think nationwide. So that could certainly be an impact to the LGBT community as well as the community at large.
0: Yes, and isn't it possible with some of the protections that were in place there, like uh, not discriminating against pre-existing conditions? Um, just one thing I'm alluding to from the HuffPost article is outright discrimination from insurance companies against the queer community or against LGBTs for their sexuality, is that is that a physical possibility? Isn't that discrimination?
1: I think people are considering if that that's a reality, and I, I think it might be a reality personally. Um, so you're, you're referring specifically to a part of the law called Section 1557, which had interpreted... Um, discrimination based on sex to be very broad, which would include then sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression. And that discrimination based on this characteristic was uh, illegal under um, the Affordable Care Act. And in fact, this was one of the reasons that a lot of health professionals were able to advocate for their patients and say all these denials of medication and treatments, uh, especially for Mm -hmm. transgender people, were otherwise illegal. And it really, I think, will depend on see what is meant by, you know, pre-existing conditions. If the language around pre-existing conditions is so broad that it can wrap around, you know, these characteristics and identities, perhaps, you know, people who see themselves as LGBT are in there. If there's exclusive carve-out for, for, for sexual and gender identity status, though, then I think that LGBT people will find themselves vulnerable if they're unable to get, um, private health insurance. If they need to have public health insurance, that they may experience discrimination. So this is an area that is has, has yet to be, you know, uh, defined. I think, but there's there certainly is reason for, to be concerned. Definitely. And um, one final
0: HIV question. Uh, noted again in this HuffPost article, it says that HIV treatment can cost um, thousands of dollars per month for patients. So. That's a huge area of concern, specifically for um, that portion of our population. Is that fair to say?
1: Absolutely. HIV medications are can be very, very expensive. Um, so, not just you know the 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 preservation of the ACA, but certainly the preservation of Ryan White funding uh, for HIV medication is really critical to maintaining the health of millions of Americans in the United States, LGBT and not. Absolutely.
0: Well, we're down to uh, one minute, um, Doctor. Um, do you have any final thoughts for us? And uh, once again, thank you so much for sharing your time and talking about the Pride Clinic today. Uh, any closing thoughts for us, sir?
1: Um, I really believe it's important to, you know, do what we can to raise awareness about issues in LGBT health. So. If you're a health professional or a person who wants to become a health professional, if you're a health professional student and you're listening, one of the things I encourage you to do is go to the website of LAMA at www.glma.org and check out the organization. It can certainly be a great organizational home for you because it talks about different educational resources and ways that you can be active in in supporting um, LGBT people in healthcare. Um, If you're not related in healthcare, you can also go to the website. I think that's a a great place to find information as a patient and learn about ways that you should be advocating and can be advocating for yourself. And I certainly appreciate the the time this morning to be invited on your show. Thank you so much for this opportunity.
0: Dr. Henry, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, again, um, we thank you so much for all the work that you're doing for the LGBTQ community, the Pride Clinic at the Thomas F. McCafferty Health Center. Thank you, sir.
1: All right. Have a great day. Thank you.